High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a preventative conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev preventative because I love Benjamin Franklin's motto, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I think of prevention in every patient I treat in the emergency department. You have an asthma attack, easy peasy, I can treat that. But I explore with my patients how to prevent the next asthma attack. Was there a trigger to avoid or control? I treat many elderly patients who fall and sustain an injury. I treat the injury, that's the easy part. But I take the extra step to explore how to avoid future falls. Substance use disorder is not different. In the emergency department, I can take care of the acute condition, but whenever possible, I like to motivate a discussion that will lead to a life of hope and recovery. Nearly every disease that enters the emergency department is an opportunity to teach prevention. But I like to reach beyond the emergency department. The ED is a canary in the coal mines that tell us what we need to do to improve societal health. Head injuries from motorcycle accidents led emergency and trauma physicians to support helmet laws. Heart attacks led us to warn about tobacco use and a good diet. What is the prevention message and method for substance use disorder that goes upstream from the emergency department? To go upstream, we need to talk to the new generation of Americans and reach them well before the age of 25 when the brain is done growing. There's a common perception, or maybe misconception, that we can't simply say no to drugs. But is that true? We teach kids several things not to do. For my new little grandbaby, we teach her, don't go near the fire, that's dangerous. We teach kids, don't drive in a car without a seatbelt. Don't walk into traffic. Don't go into an unmarked van with a stranger. Don't eat peanuts if you have an allergy. Don't smoke cigarettes and don't drink and drive. When it comes to life and death consequences, we have a precedence of saying no. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Lev. Thank you for advocating on ways of preventing drugs in a time where thousands of children are dying from accidental unintentional overdose. We're dealing with a generation that are reaching to drugs to cope with anxiety, depression, and other teenage challenges. My name is Matt White, father of Connor, who died of fentanyl poisoning at the age of 17. 
Connor obtained one pill that was a counterfeit Percocet, which killed him in minutes. He was given the pill by a drug dealer he thought was his friend. The easy access to drugs and the legalization of marijuana has created a perfect storm during this fentanyl crisis. We can't just tell our children, don't do drugs, given one pill can be a life or death decision. We must find a solution to this problem to save our kids. My question is, what is the best prevention message for youth? Is it reasonable to expect our youth to avoid drugs completely? And what would it take to accomplish that? Thank you, Matt, for your well-stated statement and the voice you and your wife, Laura, bring in elevating Connor's memory and saving other children. You are correct that this generation of children are getting mixed messages on drugs and coping with anxiety and stressors. To answer your question, I have national leaders who are best qualified for this discussion. We have a father and daughter psychiatric team, Drs. Robert and Carolyn DuPont. Dr. Robert DuPont was the first director of the U.S. National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, and the second White House drug chief. He is the founding president of Institute of Behavioral Health, IBH, a nonprofit research and policy organization that identifies and promotes new ideas to reduce drug use and addiction. Check out his recent book, Chemical Slavery, Understanding Addiction and Stopping the Drug Epidemic. You can also listen to his previous podcast, High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, episode number 13, to hear more. He's joining us today with his daughter, Dr. Carolyn DuPont, who is the vice president of IBH, Institute of Behavioral Health. She is an accomplished psychiatrist in her own right, like her father, and in addition, she maintains a private practice specializing in anxiety and addiction. To learn more about Drs. Robert and Carolyn DuPont and their One Choice Prevention Program, Check out the High Truth show notes. Doctors Robert and Carolyn Dupont, welcome to High Truths. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having us. You know what? This is so exciting for me because I have a father-daughter team, um, uh, both doctors, both talking about addiction medicine and prevention. And I want to start with just asking you, what it's like to work together, um, you know, father and daughter. Do you squabble? Do you agree? Um, and I'm asking because it's uh, personal for me. My daughter is about to graduate medical school. So I always think, how cool would it be to have a, uh, you know, mother-daughter team work on something? My husband has that. He's got, um, my husband's a dentist and he works with my son, they work together at a dental office, and and uh, so I'm, I'm envious of that. They like they talk shop. Um, that's a good way to put me to sleep when they talk about teeth. But how, what's it like for you in the Dupont household? You know, I think that's a really good point about what you said about like the teeth put you to sleep because yeah. I um, grew up, of course, listening to my father talk, and it fascinated me. And so I really feel like I grew up in the kind of substance use and psychiatry world and it i just love to hear his stories whether they were stories about people he'd worked with or about policy that was being developed and so it it was that excitement around the dinner table that led to my career wow and you're doing ex are you, did you follow your dad's footsteps exactly or similarly or well i mean i went to different schools <laughs> than he did and then um, I, but I, right after residency, when I finished at Johns Hopkins, I came to work with the family practice 
Um, and that was a, a private practice of, of our patients. So we were independent of each other, but working in the same office, which was wonderful. And then we were also doing clinical trial work at that time. So it was really a different business. But when um, IBH really took off um, with its, uh, particularly the prevention aspect of it, I guess maybe five or seven years ago, I joined up as the vice president and kind of hooked my sail with that aspect of, of, of my father's work. And it's been a pleasure all along. That's great. Yeah. So you don't like have any doubt about the fact that uh, that uh, uh, I, I'm not the source of the information. I, I, I learned from Caroline. Uh, she she's my teacher uh, and I'm just thrilled to, to 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 work with her. And she brings a, a new perspective to me that is uh, uh, very, very valuable and, and a particular passion about uh, prevention. Uh, I tend to wander all over the map on drug policy and Caroline's able to keep a little bit better focus, and we both benefit from her better focus. That's awesome. You know, I think that happens sometimes as a, you know, parent-child. When you're a parent, you raise your child, you teach them everything, and then at some point, I don't know exactly when, there's a reversal where your yeah. kids take care of you. Well, well, he is a rock star. He is a rock star. We just got back from the RX Summit and being with him at the RX Summit, which is you know big national conference um, with all the big movers and shakers in the field and um, walking around with him is like, uh, like following behind a rock star. Everybody is so excited to see him and talk to him and bask in his view. It's really wonderful. That it is wonderful. And, and uh, you're both rock stars. Uh, so that's great. And you guys uh, complement each other. Um, and I love the fact that, that uh, Bobby, you're, you're not slowing down. You're, you're, you're um, continuing the message. This is, is, you know, part of your life, right? This work. Uh, ab absolutely. It, 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 it's never been. Uh, the modern drug epidemic started in the 1960s. Uh, the world changed then. It's uh, never seen before uh, where you have uh, many, many drugs, expo po the population exposed to many, many drugs and commercial exploitation of those, both legal and uh, illegal commercial exploitation. Uh, and uh, if people think about, you know, somehow this drug problem is going to go away. No, it's not going to go away. Uh, it's going to get a lot worse uh, over time because uh, the drugs really work. People pay for the drugs. They like the experience that they have uh, with those things. And uh, it's, a, it's a challenge for not just the United States, it's a global problem. It, it's, a, it's a global problem to be dealt with. And uh, the issue is how to, how to manage that. What do you do about that? Uh, what do you do about prevention? What do you do about addiction? What do you do about all the international things in it? Uh, we, we tend to focus on one drug at a time, which is very unfortunate. Right now, we're focusing on fentanyl, uh, but it's always been a polydrug problem. It's a polydrug problem now. Uh, and one of the simple things people don't understand is what drives the drug field is the money of the users. Uh, the users pay for the poison, uh, which is very interesting to think about it from a medical point of view. You don't have a lot of things like that uh, that, that go on, but but it is, it is going to be a challenge uh, for forever coming forward. 
and and how do we how do we deal with it? Uh, and then you see the interplay of ideas and the conflicts. Uh, it's uh, endlessly interesting and challenging. Yeah. So I have a question for both of you from Matt White. Matt is father to Connor, um, who was killed at the young age of 17 by fentanyl. Um, uh, he was, you know, poisoned. That's probably not what he intended to use. And um, Connor made a mistake, and uh, it was a deadly mistake. You know, um, back in the days, you said we've always had a drug problem. People would make a mistake, recover, and can have a normal future. Um, you know, some people would develop addiction and have a lifelong problem, but most people, you know, when they're young, may make a mistake, may experiment, and it wouldn't be so deadly. That's what's kind of different now. But um, Matt, Connor's dad, is asking, what is the best prevention message for our youth? And he's also asking, is it reasonable to expect our youth to avoid drugs completely? And what would it take to accomplish that? And there's no better uh, people to answer that uh, than the two of you. That's our topic. Uh, uh, Absolutely. Uh, And uh, what's happened in the past is we have normalized youth drug use. We have said this is what kids do. They try things and they have to try it for themselves. And drugs are just part of the uh, normal experience with uh, adolescents. And our whole message is exactly the opposite of that. We're all about denormalizing youth drug use because of the dangers of it. Of Connor's a wonderful example of the dangers of it. Uh, the uh, innocent uh, intention uh, with a tragic consequence. Uh, if he had made the decision not to use drugs uh, in his youth, uh, that would never would have happened. Uh, and uh, the younger the person uses, the worse it is. Uh, and uh, uh, so that's that's our mission. To and uh, I want to have Caroline talk about it. But the the basic facts are uh, that American youth uh, have created a whole new dynamic that is largely unknown, uh, but it, it, it really is very powerful. And it is, it is the prevention uh, message. The other thing, I one, one last thing before I give up with the folks here, is it, 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 it passes from kid to kid. Con- Connor was using those drugs with other kids. They teach each other about this. It's a communicable disease uh, in adolescence. Uh, and the consequences are often fatal. Uh, and and unpredictable, uh, but, but it is preventable by one decision: not to use the not to use any drugs. Right, you're speaking my language, Doctor Dupont. I always compare the issue of drugs to infectious diseases because I'm always jealous of what we do um, as a medical community, as a CDC, when it comes to COVID or Shigella or monkeypox and. Yeah, or HIV, and we haven't approached the issue of drugs in the same way, uh, like I'd like us to. Yeah, I think that's one of the topics that we've gotten really excited about is thinking about this communicable disease and how how does it spread? Because the old message was kind of that it spread from some, I don't know, nefarious drug dealer on the corner, kind of tricking people into use. But that's not really how it happens. 
it, it's really is friend to friend or sibling to sibling or neighbor to neighbor. Um, at, and um, it it's usually very well-meaning, like organically you're at a party where people are using and they seem to be having fun and you think, oh, I could do that too, or someone offers it to you. Or um, even, even at um, someone saying, oh, this will help you with your depression, anxiety, insomnia, stress, and that sort of thing, and introducing it again in a way that is um, not intended to harm. Um, the problem is that people who are early in their substance use experience don't really, are unlikely to have um, a lot of negatives associated with that. And so, you know, they're not saying, oh, this is hurting me. I'm going to share it with a friend and hurt them too. They're saying, I like this. I enjoy it, or it feels good, or I think it helps me. I'm going to share it with my friends and my peers. And that really makes it very, very contagious during that stage of brain development where um, teens are looking for new and novel and exciting activities and inputs. Right. You're right. And then um, I like that approach, thinking of how it's a communicable disease and and really thinking about where where is the start, because you are working very much upstream in prevention. You know, like, how do we get at a very young age to the decision of not using at all? I know some people right. may be listening, so is that even possible? Is it even is that even possible for kids not to use at all? Is that even a fair message? It's one of the things that that I find really fascinating is that when we talk to kids, children, they immediately get it's possible. So if you talk to a room of third and fourth graders, they're going to be, you know, completely on board with you, right? That's not a question. Of course, we're never going to smoke. We're never going to use alcohol. You know, they can, they really see it and, and they're very smart about it. They have a lot of knowledge um, of you know, I just want to do a shout out to all the preventionists out there. There's wonderful work in prevention. And, and a lot of these young kids, they have the message and they get it and, and they're not going to use. Um, so if I speak to that population, there, you know, there's no question that it's possible. So if you say you're mean, if you get them young enough, they if say. If you get them young enough, you get them young right. enough. And, and we, we teach that in so many different ways, right? We teach right. always put your seatbelt on. Right. right. You know, you know, don't go with strangers. You know, we're, we're, we're there's a lot of things we teach young children never to do. Right. 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 Um, and, and, and I think that's really valuable to think about, like a, a generational thing with that, like bike helmets is an example of that. Mm -hmm. So we teach our kids to wear bike helmets. My generation didn't wear bike helmets. Um, and um, we've learned through public policy that actually wearing bike helmets is really important in terms of brain protection. And so we've changed. But what you might find is that um, the little kids are, are they're compliant. They're following their parents' rules and wearing their bike helmets. The people of my generation are kind of iffy on it. Some of them have bought into it and some haven't. Um, and some of them are going to be like, I was fine as a kid. I don't see why other people need to wear bike helmets or why I need to wear a high bike helmet. And then the teenage years, you often see they were kids that wore bike helmets. They grew up wearing bike helmets. But now we have things like e-scooters and um, rental bikes and things like that that don't come with helmets. It all of a sudden is renormalizing not wearing a bike helmet. 
And you see a oh lot gosh, more. That is such a brilliant analogy. That's such a good analogy. And we have that with tobacco. We work so hard to get rid of tobacco, unnormalize that. It's not cool. We achieved it. And then boom, now we have marijuana and it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and electronic cigarettes and, and all it's, that. it's really the same analogous because we have bicycles. Now we have e-scooters and the damage, you know, and the injuries are way worse. So, worse. well, we have the helmets for the bicycles. We have no helmets for the e-scooters. Well, we finally got rid of tobacco. Now we've got, you know, high potency THC. That's normalized. Wow. Right. So, so, okay. So I'm, I'm going to go keep coming back to you because you keep coming back to this really important question is, is this possible? Is this reasonable to think? And what I would say is if you look at the data, so we have amazing data about this that is um, from the early 70s and all the way to the present. And it shows what percentage of high school seniors have never used any substances. And that is a line that was very low back in the 70s and 80s, which means very few high school seniors had never used any substances, any alcohol, any nicotine, any marijuana, any other drugs. That was really unusual back in that era. And over time, the number of high school seniors who've never used substances has increased and increased and increased. And so with our most recent data, it's over 36% of high school seniors have never used any substance in their lifetime. But that was unheard of in their parents' generation. So the parents are still seeing it the way it was when they were in high school. And whether that's parents or the pediatrician or their teachers, um, their lived experience was different. But actually, each generation is doing a little better in terms of non-use. And there's another data point on that, which is, is equally important, and that is um, past month non-use. And that also has gone way up. And that is over 60% of high school seniors have not, today, have not used any substances in the past month. And that is super exciting because this is not a purity test. This is not like you didn't wear your seatbelt yesterday, so there's no point in wearing it today. It would make no sense as a public health message. You can always make the choice to wear your seatbelt. You can always use, make the choice not to use. So when we're talking about teens not using, yes, I'm a big primary prevention person. That's our, uh, you know, our passion is primary prevention, which means people who've never used. But it's absolutely an important health standard message for people who have used, who maybe have used at some point or used something to be like, wait, to protect my brain, again, thinking about brain protection, I'm going to choose not to use. And in fact, 60% of my peers in high school, seniors in high school are not using. And 30% of them have never used ever. So it's definitely possible. Right. And I, I, and I, I think the that. idea that, that really is important here, uh, Dr. Love, is, is, is uh, that the kids themselves have created this movement. It, it is so striking. That, that people, do, adults, don't know the reality of what's happened with youth drug use. And think about these numbers. In 1983, it was 3% who had never used. Now it's 36%. Right. Uh, in, in, in 1983, it was 16% who had not used in the last month. Now it's 67%. Right. That's an incredible trend 
over four decades. And it's done by American youth themselves. There's a cultural learning process. We don't have to create a movement. We have to identify it and encourage it. But it's something that has happened by youth. So somebody who says it's not possible, it's exactly the opposite of that. It is happening, and it's been happening for four decades in a steady trend in that direction. Uh, that That is cultural learning. Uh, there's something here that's very important uh, in terms of prevention of uh, defining what is possible. One of the things that when we talk about this, I often hear people will be like, that's not true in my school. You know, that's not right. Like, you're wrong. And so, first of all, this is big, big national data that we're talking about. And so it it is um, controlled for all sorts of um, things. So it's really high quality data. Right. This is the NISDA data, right? The national yes, yes, exactly. Of drug use and health. Yeah. Right. And this is so, but, but one of the things is about that contagious disease component is what we know about, about youth is they tend to relate and interact with people that have similar views with them. And that includes similar views about substance use and alcohol use and other drugs. And so their peers, the people that they are seeing may all be using. And so their, their feeling is everybody's using is because that's who they're surrounded with. And so what I always get them to think about is, can you expand that N? Can you look for the people who aren't using instead of looking for the people who are supporting that view that everybody's using? Let's look for those people that aren't because I'm telling you 30% of high school seniors have not used at all. That, that means they're there and they're not um, some kind of lower tier social people. That's a fear that a lot of adults have that like, oh, those must be the social outcasts. But it's not true. They're athletes. They're people who are focused on their academics. They're people who have dreams for their future. They're people who know from family history that, that substance use is a problem in their family. It's all through the, you know, the, the schools. And so if you look for them, you will find them. Yeah. And I think what you guys are talking about is promoting the social norms, you know, um, uh, Dr. Wes Perkins talk about that, that people think, oh, everybody's using, it's inevitable. But if you actually survey and show the data, um, then you'll you'll show people that most people actually choose not to. And sharing that social norms will help people think, okay, yeah, I'm not using it, And I don't have to hide the fact that I'm not using because there's a bunch of other people um, with me on that. Absolutely. Another thing that, that has gotten to be really interesting to me is, how, again, thinking about that changing landscape is how it's different now than it used to be, is that we have another peer um, involved, and that's the internet peer. All of the social networking peers and the um, programming peers that often are really normalized, trying, working very hard to normalize substance use. And so that also is adding to the dialogue that that um, youth may be hearing that everybody is using. And you're like, well, where, what's that source? And, and what's their motivation behind what they're sharing with you? And so uh, one of the things I, I also say is on the, on the internet, you will also find this group that is not using, but you do have to look for them because um, people who are non-users tend to fly under the radar a little bit more. They don't kind of post an Instagram post that says, great non-drug weekend. 
you know, it's right. not what we do. It's not, they, they might have great instrument program posts about something that they did that weekend that was fun, but they're not going to highlight that they weren't using. But people who are using are often very um, vocal about it. And it's very clear that they're using from the things that they're posting or the things that they're saying or the kinds of activities that they're doing. And so again, it looks like it's in everybody, but it's not. Yeah. And uh, it's also important to remember that we're just talking about under the age of 21. Uh, 25. Dr. DuPont, Dr. 25. Well, I'm going <laughs> to. 21 is where we're talking about because that's the legal leveler. Uh, that that's the it's Ill, all, uh, all drug use is illegal under 21. Right. But what I do in my presentations is I'll say, I don't care about the legal marijuana is legal. All sorts of things are legal. I want to use the science and the science is 25 years old. So yeah, you could legally use. So I say, if you want to protect your brain and wear a helmet, on your your brain, you know, metaphorically for drugs, it's 25. Yeah. It totally is. And so I love to speak to college students about this too. So if you think about that, that 30% of high school seniors are just about to become college freshmen. And those are people who've never used. And that's 60% who haven't used in the past month, which means they might have experimented at some point, but they are not user, um, users or using frequently. They are, you know, going right into college. And um, we have that same social norming, that college is a place where it's very socially normed to be using substances. Mm -hmm. And so college freshmen, when they're interviewed, they think everybody's doing it. But you know they're not. They just came out of high school not using a lot of them, and they're continuing to not use. But again, they're not necessarily advertising it. So you're going to have to look for those people. But when I tell them about the brain, you're talking about brain development. I love the brain development stuff. So our brains keep developing until we're 25, and no one is more excited about that than the college students, because they're working really hard, and the idea that they are going to have the opportunity to be faster, better, stronger, more with their brain development, they love, and they really are interested in brain protection. And so giving them this information is very powerful, giving them that information that actually that the legal age is 21, and if you if you make it to 21 without using, that's fantastic for brain protection. I mean, that is fantastic, and that is the law. But there's reason to go to 25 because you want to squeeze every last drop out of that brain development that you can. And anything that you do to affect a, a, affect a developing brain negatively can really have a lasting impact. So let's protect that. I love it. I'm going to put a helmet in my next uh, talk that I'm going to do, and I'm going to think of you. <laughs> um, so we're talking about, um, you know, social norms, saying that it is possible to have kids make the one choice not to use drugs. But isn't that contrary to a lot of what we're hearing about, uh, you know, the D.A.R.E. movement and don't use drugs and just say no? Um, and And that whole concept is being shot down as like that was ineffective um but yeah we're saying something similar is it or or are we well i was there for this uh for, <laughs> the, for, for all of that uh and uh it, it's interesting people talk about evidence-based prevention uh and i think about what do you mean by evidence-based 
Uh, do you know that uh, marijuana use by youth in this country dropped by 62 percent between 1983 uh, uh, and 1994? Uh, that was the parents' movement. People say it didn't work. Of course it worked. It was stunningly successful uh, in dropping it. The, the marijuana use by youth is now half what it was uh, in the peak, uh, uh, for example. People don't know that. Uh, about that. Uh, but that that movement actually did work very well. Uh, it it uh, diminished its effect uh, with the legalization movement that started uh, in the 1980s uh, and the 1990s. Uh, but but th that 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 actually did work uh, quite quite remarkably. The the peak alcohol use for kids, for example, was back in 1983 uh, when 72% had used in the last month. Uh, now the number is about 30%. I think one of the things you, you see with that is that it is hard to show in that evidence-based that any single prevention program is effective, um, especially when you think about, you know, across the nation. And so what Bob is talking about is when the country was really focused on prevention, there were all of those things. That's what Just Say No was part of the parents' movement. Um, so was the, the kind of rise of dare. There was a lot of focus on substance use prevention in youth. And it actually was effective. If you look at the data, it was effective. But it wasn't easy to tell which aspects of it were the thing that was effective. But the, the preponderance of, of prevention messaging was effective. The other thing that's a problem is that we tend to look at old things and be really very, I don't know, mean about them, very scathing. You know, we make fun of them. They become a source of humor. And the war on drugs, that's dumb. Just say no, is, that's dumb. <laughs> it's dumb, exactly. And, and you know, we can do the, this is your a brain on drugs with the fried egg commercial kind of, and everybody laughs and says, oh, that's so stupid. Um, and so we look at something that happened in the past and we're and we're very dismissive of it. And, and that to me is just always marching orders that we in prevention need to always be growing and changing and having it be a youth led movement. That is really key. We um, who are the experts that older people experts absolutely play an important role. I'm not diminishing you know, my role or anybody else's role um, at all. But what you really want to do is pass that microphone to this generation. And again, there are a lot of them. There are a lot of them who have not used ever. There are a lot of them have used who have stopped. And there are people who have had substance use problems and significant um, difficulties and even diagnosed substance use disorders who are now not using, who are also have a lot to say. And so um, I'm always thinking, yeah, let's have it be a modern message. Give that microphone to the kids. Wow, I like that. And and you're right. There's not one commercial, right? Whether it's the fried egg commercial that, you know, that I didn't quite understand when I was little. But but you never know what touches different kids because we're all different, right? I've heard people that when you know when they when they saw those lungs that were black from tobacco, that that, you know, that's a scare tactic, but that worked on some people. Um, it did. So, it did. Yeah. We we tend to now say scare tactics are ineffective. I don't think they're ineffective. But what I think is more effective is showing um, the kids who are not using and hearing their reasons why. One of the one of our partner organizations um, in Rye, New York, has a wonderful campaign 
which is the I am one campaign. And so they, they have a campaign where they, they have these tiles, these um, like brightly colored cards that, that people can fill out that say, I am one, I make one choice to be drug free because, and they say why they've, they've made this choice and they're anonymous. And they put it up as a huge mural in the school, in the high school. Wow. And what was really great about it is you realized you weren't alone because there were so many tiles up there and you could read what they said. And, you know, was that your reason? Or was that different than your reason? And it was very powerful. And then they moved it to the middle school. And so then they had those voices of those high school students speaking to the middle school students and the middle school students added their voice and their tiles to it. And now we've had... Um, organizations that have joined our, our one choice prevention community. We've had a, a communities all across the country who have used that same strategy because it's just such a great one yeah. to, to really let those kids communicate to each other. And that's a way to do it without literally putting a microphone in kids' hands. Some kids love a microphone in their hand and they want to tell their story and that's very powerful. But other ones, you know, this more anonymous technique. What What are some of the things that were written on the tile? I love that idea. What were some of the things? What yeah, the absolutely. Tools? Things like um, because I want to go to college or because I want to be an athlete or because my mother had problems with drugs. I mean, people have everybody yeah. has a reason. Yeah. One of the things we like to say is that is the choice not to use is an active, ongoing choice. And it, that's that's really important. It's not like these kids haven't had exposure. You can't you can't exist without exposure. The exposure is all around us. And um, so these are kids that have um, have made a personal choice for whatever their reasoning is, that they are making that active choice not to use. And what we have found is that articulating that adds to that power. So if you identify and you you actually can help that person who's not using, whether that's a, a very young person, like I was talking with third and fourth grader, or you're talking about someone who's in seventh and eighth grade, or you're talking about someone in his high school, or you're talking about someone who's in college, and you get them to really articulate and identify, yes, I am a non-user, or what we call it is, um, you know, I am a one-choicer, that's, you know, I, I, I identify with this and I've made this choice for myself. That's its own kind of protection because it difficult situations come up all the time. And it might be an enticing situation in terms of fun. Again, like a lot, all these people are having fun. I want to have fun too. Or it might be um, like, I'm really struggling. I'm really in a down period and I'm, I'm doing badly and I want something to help me because I'm feeling so desperate and my friend thinks this would help me. So there are all sorts of ways that, that it's insidious in someone's life that someone who might have made a decision not to use is all of a sudden confronted with something. And you want to give them all the kind of preparedness for that moment that they're like, but no, I'm someone who's made that choice I'm not going to use. And that's that's really helpful to them at that moment, because unfortunately, there's another phrase that we like to use is there's no problem in life that is so bad that drugs or alcohol can't make it worse. <laughs> Great phrase. Wow. Say it again. <laughs> how do you say that, Bob? You say that better than me. There's no problem so bad that drugs and alcohol won't make it worse. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, so tell us about your new program, 
um, with One Choice, preventing youth substance use, what adults need to know. Um, um, you know, so let's uh, one of the pro or kind of, you know, tell us what you do. You train the trainer, right, for 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 prevention folks around the country. Right. So so I'm just going to go back to One Choice again for a second because we've talked about it. Like I've mentioned it a bunch, but we never actually said like what is that and why do we call it that. Yeah. Um, so, so one choice is a, a, a message and a um, information that comes out of the, our organization, the Institute for Behavior and Health, and it, it puts together three main elements. Um, one is that the brain is the, the adolescent brain is uniquely vulnerable to substance um, use because of that developing brain. And so that's that under 21 or under 25 component of it. The second component we really haven't talked about today, and that is that all substance use is related. So what we have, uh, again, fantastic research where we took big national research um, and looked at it in a different way and looked at whether the use of one drug by adolescents, these were 12 to 17 years old, was related to use of other substances. And so we saw that if, if a teen in that range had said that they did use marijuana, their risk of using alcohol, nicotine, and other drugs like opioids or, or methamphetamines or anything like that went way up. And if they were someone who didn't use any marijuana in the past month, that's the way this study works, um, they were very unlikely to use any of those things. And if they were someone who said, I did use marijuana in the past month, their risk of using those substances went way up, many times the risk. And then we looked at the same data for nicotine and we said, so if they use nicotine in the past month, what is their risk of using those other substances? And if they didn't use nicotine, what is their risk? And if they didn't use any nicotine, their risk of drinking, of marijuana use and other substances was very low. And if they did use nicotine, it was way up on all those substances. And then we did it one more time with looking at alcohol first. And we said, if a teen said, yes, I did use alcohol in the past month, what was their risk of using other substances? And the teens that said, I did not use any alcohol in the past month were very unlikely to have used any other substances. And the teens that had used alcohol in the past month were way more likely to have used those other substances. And that's where we get this term one choice because we realized that the teens really are making that first choice. Am I someone who uses or not? So when that first time they say, I am going to use alcohol, or I am going to use this THC containing product, or I am going to vape, or whatever it is they're deciding, they now have a huge range of other things that they could say. They could say, okay, I vaped. Does that mean I'm also going to smoke cigarettes? Does that mean I'm also going to smoke pot? And does it mean that I'm also going to drink alcohol? And they have a whole range of questions open to them. But someone who has said, no, I don't do that. I don't use. They're done. They've made that one choice that is really their brain protection. So that's where the one choice comes from. All right. The last component of our one choice message is that growing number of youth that are not using and that this substance use is not inevitable. And that's so important to understand because if you think it's inevitable, then all you can do is manage. The reality is that they are all going to use. And that's the kind of hunkered down mentality that some parents and adults get. And into. it's giving up on our youth. It's so unfair. It's horrible. It's horrible. Don't do that. 
It's giving up. It's yeah, and I see that. It's like, oh well, let's just teach you how to use it safer. And it's like, how do you do that when the consequences could be death? Right, right. And and I, I coming full circle to your very sad story about Connor, you know, which you know, those are heartbreaking stories, heartbreaking stories. And I think it is important to see how fentanyl, particularly, has changed that. That you can have someone who's very early on a substance using journey i would hazard that for most people it's not the very first thing they take and again i think that's why that one choice information is so important i i can very much carolyn attest to that that i mean i i um i treat people who use fentanyl or overdosed or died or almost died of fentanyl i ask everyone i i, I see who uses drugs what's the first drug you ever used and it's always, almost, you know, 100% of the time, marijuana at a very young age. Yes, yes. Yeah. And marijuana, alcohol, and nicotine are by far the, the, the most clear things that people are going to start with. Everybody's going to start with. And but nicotine is not so cool anymore. Which, which isn't? Nicotine. So nicotine, we were doing great with nicotine right. until right. they came up with a new right. delivery. Do you smoke <laughs> cigarettes? No, but... Uh, marijuana oh yeah that's just weed right yeah yeah it's terrible it's horrible and <laughs> but it's one of the reasons that that bob said about this being it's always been a poly drug use problem mm -hmm. and so if you're gonna just do site substance specific you're gonna be just playing whack-a-mole all the time because it's always going to be something else mm -hmm. so again kind of coming back to this this one choice message that we're working on it's it really has to do with communicating those three elements very clearly, but all with science. So one of the things is we're very graph heavy. And so a podcast is always funny because we have all these graphs um, and that we normally are showing because we have, you know, it, I like the science of it because it's not us just saying because we told you so. It's, it's no, look, here's the data because every kid goes out into the world and has to make their own decisions. And it's a big, scary world out there. You got to give them these tools and this information. And so one choice, our one choice prevention is all about that. It's getting that information into the hands. And so, as you said, we at IBH, we're not, we are sometimes getting lucky enough to talk to the kids, but mostly we don't. Mostly we're talking to the people who have programs that are talking to the kids. And so they already have a program and their program may be a prevention program that's, that is substance specific. It may be a general wellness program. It may be an anti-bullying program. It might be a mental health program. Um, all of these things that are, you know, major focuses for people who treat um, adolescents. And what we're saying is you can benefit by our information, this this science, this data, and this messaging style can be interwoven into whatever you're already doing, the great work you're already doing. And so we're we're just really eager to help these communities um, help their kids. And so that's what we do at IBH. Right. And uh, and then tell us about your your the 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 most recent program with the with the five five steps that every adult should know exactly exactly so so we we almost everything we've developed we've developed because someone in our community has said to us i need something i need um a handout for this situation 
And so we did this exact thing. We had someone came to us and they said, we need a handout for our parents. We need something to hand out, like, here's what you need to know. And so we just synthesized these same things that we've been talking about into um, this one choice five prevention basics, um, what adults need to know. And it's it's very simple. It's number one is what, um, I know that youth substance use is not inevitable. That's the, you know, the key one with the parents again, because they are a little bit lost. They think my experience was everybody used. And so we're like, nope, right out front, get across that information and that data that helps them understand that youth substance use is not inevitable. And then it's be brain development savvy. And so brain development, you know, again, why is it different that you as an adult are sitting and having a glass of wine versus you saying it's okay if my kid is using? Well, that's because you have a developed brain and it may or may not be good for you as a, as a physician. I'm prepared to discuss that, but I'm also prepared to say it's different. It's different for this developing brain and it's important to know that. Um, it's also really important to be, the third one is to be substance savvy. And this is um, useful because the substances have changed. They are not the same as they once were. And so fentanyl, we've talked a lot about, and, and that's really frightening. Um, but the high potency marijuana that you're talking about is like nothing we've ever seen. And the research that's on marijuana is all on very low dose marijuana that I understand you can't even buy low dose marijuana like like what used to grow in <laughs> the good old days <laughs> the good old days um exactly and it's not like people didn't get in plenty of trouble with that yeah. but this is totally a different thing it, it's so, it's more like methamphetamine really with the high potent stuff right uh, it's scary right it's scary mm -hmm. and and people don't realize that and and i think people still have a little bit of a um I don't know, a fondness for thinking about it as being kind of it's all natural, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, mm, not really. So is tobacco. It's a plant. It's natural. It helps, you know. <laughs> so is arsenic. But OK. <laughs> um, the fourth point is to talk early and talk often that it's a repeat thing. It's not like a one time moment um, of, of, of talking with your kids. And so you want to start young and you want to keep going and you want to be really clear about what your family values are, about what your concerns are, and what your rules are. And parents often feel like, oh, my kid doesn't listen to me. But there's actually lots of research that kids do listen. So that's the, and then the last thing is act quickly. And they say, you know, prevention starts at birth, right? <laughs> as soon as your kid's born. 100% right? You learn, you know, what's okay, what's not okay, what to touch, what not to touch. Um, and even with substances, we're teaching very early on, you know, you can only take your own medicine. You have to take it just at the way the doctors prescribed it. You right. know, we have child safety locks on things. Right. So we are, we are teaching substance use prevention from the beginning. And number five. Oh, number five was act quickly if you suspect use. Yeah. And so, you know, that has to do with with not holding back. And, and one of the things that I often find is that parents, they aren't sure when to intervene. And so they let things go a little too long. Um, they they'll they'll minimize it. Oh, it's only beer or it's only pot or it's only this or it's only that. I always know when I get that only word in there that we're in trouble. Um, because, you know, a substance use is related. So if they say it's only pot, the chance that your kid's only using pot it's not really good. 
right. um, you're probably using other things. Um, you're just not seeing it yet. Um, and and you don't really want to wait till there's a problem because with, with fentanyl, the problem could be death. But I wanted to point out that people have died of these, you know, forever. I mean, you know, uh, people my age were, were dying of drunk driving. You know, they were out driving and, um, and were in crashes and things like that. And so it's never been safe. And one of the things I get parents to do is remember, like, you're, you're kind of glossing over it and thinking, oh, it was all fun. We had a great time. And I'm like, really? Really, was it fun? Did anybody die? Because some people didn't die in my life. And what about um, bad things? Was anybody sexually assaulted? Was anybody um, physically assaulted, robbed? Right. Yeah. Have a really embarrassing situation that's one of the ones that you still cringe at 40 years later? So the the one choice program of of educating and messaging is is important. It's uh, really upstream um, in primary prevention. Do you think this is something should be in in our school system? All right. We we used to have you know whatever people say the dare program, and that again, like you said, has a bad reputation. But but this is so important and vital to our future. Uh, we teach math and English and history. Should we be entering this as well in, in our health education, part of physical education, part of health education at a young age? I mean, the answer is yes, of course, absolutely, it should be. Um, and I think it is in a lot of places. And so one of the things, again, that's really important to understand about, about one choice prevention is that we're not trying to supplant anybody else's program. We're trying to help whatever program they've got. Um, so what I notice about prevention is that there are some national programs, but the vast majority of prevention is local. It's this school, this community, this county, um, this faith-based program. And um, those are the people who know their community and who are in the trenches and are talking to the kids. And absolutely, this should be interwoven into whatever they're doing. And that's that's kind of what I'm mean about it doesn't matter even if you don't have a program you're working with kids that's specifically about substance use here's here's material you can use here's information you can use that you can you can use um to make sure that your community is aware of of these topics and knows how to keep themselves safe right so how how does um the messaging work we've had uh, podcasts about prevention science, uh, rigorous science, you know, double-blind control studies that show if you do this program, you know, in fifth graders, then, you know, years down the road, they won't use drugs, they'll have a higher education and, and um, you know, have less violence. How does um, your program integrate into that prevention science? Has it um, had the same double-blind studies and blueprint certification um, that's very rigorous. Absolutely. And that's, again, the key. I'm going to keep saying we're not a program. We're not a program. We're information to be used by anybody else. So if you're using a program, and in fact, if you're using one of those um, fabulous programs, all we can do is salute you and say, if any of our information is helpful to you, please feel free to use it. And Because a lot of programs have come to us, people who have programs have come to us, and they're like, oh, oh, this is great. Because the programs that they have, it's not that they say things so differently, but they don't have the data to back it up. 
And when you're talking to a really savvy high school student, you need to be able to back up what you're saying. And so they're able to use, along with the great work that they're already doing, they can use this data to help them. That's good. And um, Bob, Dr. DuPont, I'm wondering if you, you have, you know, incredible, you're a living history book of, of drugs and addiction. And, and every year, uh, you used to be in charge, you know, I don't remember what your budget was when you were uh, the drug czar, but now it's, you know, multi-billion dollars. So I don't know, were you at the billions way back then? But each year, there's, you know, more digits added to the money. And yet each year, the problem is worse and worse. Are, are we throwing good money after bad? Are we investing it properly over the years? Can you you know, your historical insights of, of what's happening. What do you think? Well, the, the, the investments are going up, as you say, very, very dramatically. Uh, it's it's interesting to me that, that I think the focus right now, you, you, you've used the term many times fentanyl. It, it's That's what people are thinking about. It's about fentanyl. And when you think about fentanyl, you think about overdose deaths. Uh, and that's the, the headline uh, in that. It, it's very striking to me that that uh, we've been concerned about overdose deaths for a long time, uh, and overdose deaths have been going steadily up. Uh, you don't see any signs of overdose deaths going down, uh, and uh, I'm sure they will from time to time. But uh, the general trend line is is up, uh, and I think that has to do with the the, uh, the 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 drug use. There's an awful lot of drug use going on, and there's a lot of People who are um, supporting the drug use and normalizing the drug use, and I think the drug use is inherently very dangerous. Uh, um, so uh, I, I, I think, in in general, uh, we need to think about the the use of the drugs as being a problem, and think about how we can reduce that drug use. Uh, is is very important uh, in terms of where we're where we're trying to go uh, with this. Uh, but but uh, uh, th that really is a fundamental issue for the for the country to think about. Uh, and uh, the dynamics of it are uh, going in the other direction. Uh, we're getting more drugs all the time, uh, lower prices, higher potency. Uh, the uh, drug supply is very uh, uh, responsive to the market. Uh, and. Uh, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, I think the key to this is uh, the user's money. Uh, as long as the money is there, the, the sellers will come to get the money. What about our tax dollar money that's being spent towards solution? Are we spending that wisely? <laughs> well, is, I, is, I, I'd, like, I'd like to see more uh, put into uh, uh, focused on uh, reducing the drug use. And that's not what we're doing now. Uh, we're talking about have safer drug use uh, as opposed to not using, uh, and I think that's a that that's a concern uh, to to me in terms of the uh, of terms of the priorities. Uh, but but it's uh, it, it's it's an interesting uh, dynamic. The uh, the uh, money that's come in from the from the opioid settlement has made a big difference to people. A lot of a lot of things, a lot of good things are going on. I guess is what I would say, but. I think we've got a long way to go to recognize how uh, seductive the drugs are and uh, uh, 
you know, he's talking about overdoses, for example, and you were talking about the the example of a, I think it was 17 year old you were talking about, you know, the, the kids are not who's dying of overdoses. It's the overdoses is, is, is 40 years old. Uh, typically, it's not 17 who's dying. Uh, 50 year olds are dying uh, of overdoses. The, the, the deaths are among older people, not so much younger people uh, that is going on. And they're chronic uh, drug users are mostly who's dying. Uh, of the overdoses, not the not the novice. There are some novices who die. There's no doubt about it, and it's tragic. But the main de deaths are people who are chronic uh, drug users, and I think we've we've uh, uh, we need to to focus on that and, and think about how we reduce that uh, in the United States. Right. Well, m my sense is that we've shifted our focus a lot more heavily to treatment. And of course, I'm for that. I'm a doctor and I treat people who have a you know, substance use disorder um, and huge efforts on naloxone and harm reduction. But we haven't, we forgot to go upstream and put more focus upstream, which is what you guys do. About um, prevention. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's ab absolutely right. The other thing, though, I would mention is that uh, our, also our ambitions about treatment are too low. We don't have a high enough ambition. The, the biggest thing that's happened in the, in the treatment world in my career is the emergence of a large recovery community in the United States. We have 23 million Americans who are in recovery from uh, drug addiction. Uh, that's very exciting. Uh, and when people talk about evidence, I'd like to have us do a little more studying of who those people are and how do they get there and how do they get in recovery and what does yeah. recovery mean uh, to them. Uh, so I think basically our treatment approach has been uh, too uh, 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 limited in terms of its goal. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, what you look at that recovery, you find that people uh, have changed their lives in very dramatic ways. And uh uh, treatment has been part of that, but uh, only part of that. A lot of the people who are in recovery never went to treatment at all. Right. there, And there, there is, like you said, 23 million Americans who are really inspiring. I just, I worked last night and there was a gentleman who was there to get his refill of his asthma inhaler. Okay. And that's like a simple thing in the ear. I could do that. Um, but I asked him, like I ask everybody about drug use. He goes, no, no, I'm, I'm clean. And he said, doc, to be honest, I, I'm just out of jail. So when I left jail, they gave me a little, you know, emergency pack. And then I ran out of my, my medicines. I said, oh, really? What was your drug of choice? It was methamphetamine, you know, and he, this is, is a, you know, 60 year old man. And I said, well, how did you quit? Did you have cravings? You know, did you program? Um, and I think he, he was nine months in jail. So he got his brain back. He didn't even know that he got his brain back. And he says, I decided that if I want to do something with, you know, the rest of my life, I can't use drugs. And I said, do you have any cravings? Is it hard? You know, because meth is so addicting. He go, said, no, I just finally, it took him many years, but he finally, you know, made that decision. That one choice he made at age 60 <laughs> out of yeah, jail. So yeah, it's yeah, never yeah, too yeah, late. I want to give him that guy the microphone yeah. uh, and have him talk about that. Absolutely. I think that's right. There's a wisdom there that is hard won. Uh, and uh, we need to pay a lot more attention to that. And it's also very clear, it's not cutting down. Cutting down did not help him. It was stopping that made the difference. Yeah, yeah, that was inspiring. Yeah, so, you know, simple medication refill ended up being a, an inspiring conversation. I think it's so important that every 
opportunity you have to talk about it is an opportunity to reinforce that. And whether you're reinforcing on the prevention end, you're, you're talking to a kid and, you, and they're saying, oh, I don't use, and you have that opportunity to reinforce that good choices that they're making for their health or someone who's using and you're using that as an opportunity to talk to them about why it'd be a good idea for them to not use. But all the way through the continuum of someone who's had, a again, a significant substance use disorder, every opportunity, like an asthma refill, is an opportunity to give him a little kind of a booster shot, if you were, on his recovery. And so he comes out of that interaction feeling like, yeah, I did that. I'm proud. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was amazing. Um, especially asking him how he did it. I wanted to get insights, you know, so I could like tell other people. Um, we we were recently uh, at the National Rx Summit. So again, a big conference, who's who uh, uh, there. I got to see you briefly, which is uh, very cool. Um, and this year, I noticed something um, that's just, you know, a reflection of what we're seeing in society that was a little different. Um, I went to sessions where someone came to the microphone and said, you know, uh, I'm using methamphetamine and that's okay. And everybody was clapping from them and celebrating their drug use um, at a conference was supposed to, you know, do prevention treatment. Um, and I thought that that was kind of a symbol, you know, a symptom of a movement that wants to normalize drug use. And I don't know if you saw that or felt that at this conference, um, um, but but it but it was there. And so are we, is, is this kind of like social media where we're promoting the extremes? Don't use ever, <laughs> never, you know, and, and uh, uh, it's okay to use, you know, math. It's all right. If it doesn't bother you, then, then why not? Well, I, I I think that that that, that the, the, there is a very strong movement in our field uh, to uh, to to uh, respect the the drug use uh, a little bit like we would say alcohol use. Uh, we 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 think about alcohol use and normalize the alcohol use. Uh, we don't think about the the uh, uh, the negative parts of that uh, very much, uh, oftentimes. And to do that with other drugs, uh, like intravenous uh, methamphetamine use, which is uh, very interesting. Or a, a colleague of ours who's a, a psychologist uh, talks about how he uses heroin on a regular basis uh, and talks about the normalization, write a book about that. Uh, that's, that's something different, too. I wonder if we substitute, and you, you said alcohol. It's like, well, you know, I only have one cigarette a day. Right or three, we didn't we didn't create a standard for tobacco of um, you know uh, uh, the the standard for tobacco is tobacco cessation right we want to help yeah. you quit to save your lungs um, the standard for alcohol there's very strict dietary guidelines uh, of of what's safe that what's not safe and and uh, if you have you know certain medical conditions safe is zero right uh, yeah. if you don't have any you know risk factors then safe is you know three drinks a day or seven for a week for a woman and and four and 14 for a man. Uh, and, and it depends on age. So we, we've set those standards. And yet here, um, I see people trying to make those analogies again with, with drugs, with methamphetamine or marijuana. And, and it, it doesn't, I think it doesn't work, but the, but it's that, that movement. 
Well, you know, what is our standard for cigarettes? It's zero. We have we don't have any ambiguity about that. I don't think uh, the health standard is zero, uh, and uh, uh, we don't have that for alcohol. Absolutely, uh, we have a a a, a, a boundary uh, that that's there, and uh, you can do that with other drugs too. Uh, I, I think it's a, a, a very dangerous approach uh to these to these other drugs to to use that marijuana is a is a terrific example of you know what what is what is our message about marijuana uh is that a good thing and and uh, how much is too much uh you don't have much discussion about that in marijuana but i think that's the future is to to, to do that uh to really uh, hone in on what those issues are uh about uh how much is too much uh but uh you don't hear a lot of that happening i'll i'll share with you um a, a document that we created with isaac the uh, international academy on science and impact of cannabis and there are some standards that can be applied you know very very simple non you know non-controversial check with your medic other medications that you're taking, make sure there's no drug interactions or, you know, uh, wait four and a half hours after smoking before getting in the wheel. Because even though you don't have the perception that you're impaired, you are impaired. Um, you know, um, you, you know, just things to, to, to think about, you know, read the FDA label and then decide if you want to take that risk or not, or understand that, you know, like tobacco is a risk for lung disease and, and cancer and COPD. Not everybody who smokes get those diseases, but it's a risk, and you just need to understand that risk. Same thing with marijuana. Not everybody who's using marijuana is going to get psychosis of, or permanent schizophrenia, but it's a risk. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that's and one of the things I think sometimes that, that prevention has lost ground with is, is that scare technique that people are like, but it's not true because there are lots of people who are lifelong drinkers who never have any problems or lifelong smokers who never have any problems. Right. And and so it's really important that we recognize that not everybody is going to have a problem. The problem is you don't know if you're going to be the person. And um, it's, it's more like to me, like Russian roulette, because there really isn't any way to know. You might have relative risk factors, but but really you don't know if you're going to be the one that it's going to really escalate and be a problem for you. And um, so when we're talking like in a lot, most of our conversation today about youth, I feel like maybe we could have a brighter line with youth and say that under that, again, going with that legal age of 21 under that age, it's really, nobody's going to think it's a good idea. It's not a good idea from a health perspective. Again, just going back to health, from a health perspective, there's not going to be a safe limit for that. Um, so we can't say like that a limit of alcohol that you you said, which is right. From from a health perspective, we've kind of come up with that term that that you're unlikely to have bad health outcomes from using that amount or less. But we don't have that assuredness when we're talking about that developing brain. What about? And I don't know if you've encountered that when parents use. Parents own dispensaries or in the you know or in the business or they use um, is communication directly to the kids or to the parents. I think a lot of parents who use are very uh, comfortable with uh, discouraging kids from using. Uh, that 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 line 
again, I think it is a is a is a very useful uh, line to use uh, in general. Uh, and and it, it's interesting also if if you start later, the likelihood of you're having a serious problem goes down. Uh, also, so I th I think the the uh, the bright line of uh, of of 21 or 25 is 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 very useful to think about it. But but uh, you know think of all the problems we've had with alcohol and tobacco, uh, and now you're adding what 10,000 other drugs. I mean it's it's a number like that. It's not five or six. Uh, it's thousands, wow. uh, and the commercial exploitation of those. Uh, you know, the commercial exploitation of alcohol and tobacco has been kind of problematic, let's say. Uh, uh, but uh, now you add 10,000 other chemicals uh, to that to that mix and you get some idea of where we're headed uh, in terms of uh, uh, a, a drug problem. The, the, uh, the, the brain is very, uh, uh, very vulnerable. Uh, to uh, to the the rewards of of drugs, and uh, uh, we're we're talking about it's still in the early stages of dealing with the drug epidemic. It's going to go on for a very long time and uh, challenge us uh, because of the power uh, of the drugs to take over people's judgment. Uh, and uh, and I I think in the long run it's going to uh, lead to a lot of people finding the sort of the one choice answer that it's a, a simpler thing to just say no to all of them than decide to figure out which one you're going to use or which two or three or four or five or 20 that you're going to do and how much are you going to do you think about that as a as a human project uh it's uh it's it's not a very appealing view to think about where that where that goes at least i don't think so you end up with deciding one choice again, I think, in a lot of times. I, I love that. One choice to wear a helmet for the inner part of your brain. Uh, yeah. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, because the danger is that you will like it. You know, the, the, not the danger that you won't like it. The, the danger is that you will like it and it'll change your thinking uh, and it'll uh, put you at risk that uh, you otherwise wouldn't have. Uh, I, I think. Uh, uh, commercial exploitation of brain reward uh, is uh, is a is a is a scary idea. Yeah, interesting. You should say that. And thinking back to being a child, I was afraid to try smoking because I was afraid of being addicted. That I wouldn't, you know, I didn't want to even go there. Afraid you'd like it. Yeah. But I think that came from some prevention, some prevention program or message that you were given as a child that put that risk that you were like, uh oh. This is risky. This could happen. This bad outcome could happen. Right. And so that's like, to me, like, see, look, prevention works. Right. Prevention works. And it's uh, evidence-based. Uh, and and it's, you know, life is scary. People are saying, oh, we don't want to scare kids. It's like, but, you know, we scare kids not to run into traffic. Right. <laughs> we tell people we you know, there's some clear things that we say don't to do. I think that that's that's actually that's OK. All right. Um, Dr. DuPont, both uh, Bob and Carolyn, if you were president of the United States and you can fix this, what policies, what would you do? What where, where do we need to, to do with the situations we have uh, right now? 
Well, I, I, the, the things that really excite me right now are, are first of all, youth prevention. Because uh, once you get to 21 or 25, uh, the interest in doing it goes way down. So that, that, that's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, and the other thing is uh, uh, the, the uh, miracle of recovery. Uh, that's what I would focus on. And we haven't talked much about it, but uh, I certainly have strong feelings about it. And that, that is about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, Narc and Narcotics Anonymous and the, the 12-step programs. Uh, which are very dominant in this uh, in this field and, and other uh, recovery support uh, is pretty interesting and and I would uh, have a lot more uh, focus on that. I think that's a, a, a very positive aspect of uh, this drug epidemic is uh, is involved in in uh, recovery support and the, the unique programs of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous that are free and available all over the country. Uh, are uh, are uh, are a miracle and uh, uh, a great uh, credit to our country that it started in the United States in 1935 in Akron, Ohio. That's great. And you, Madam President, I would think I would really love it if if not just from the very top of the president, but but all the way down, people in positions of leadership or visibility would use that platform to to normalize non-use and to um, kind of celebrate non-use and talk about how not using was important to them achieving their goals and their um, ambitions. Um, because I think that uh, a lot of people have, have great stories about choices that they made in their life um, that it doesn't occur to them, again, to share it and about how powerful that could be for youth of today to be listening to and being like, oh, I want to be like that person. I want to I want to grow up to be like that person. And that person probably made a lot of choices um, about use and non-use that allowed them to get to where they are today. And that that is across that continuum of people who have never used and are continuing to be non-users. That And we're beginning to see this with some celebrities who are talking about non-use and never using. But then we also have that the opportunity for people who've had trouble to say, I had trouble with this and it was hard for me and here's what I did. And again, um, using their story as, as an inspiration for other people to stop or other people to not use. Right. Um, that is very inspirational. I will definitely, every time I talk to you guys, I learn something new and I take it, absorb it and uh, implement it. So I appreciate your wisdoms. And I want to say thank you to Matt White for your question. May the memory of Connor be a blessing to you and your wife, Laura, and your whole family. It's not easy to speak out after such a loss, but you're doing it in order to help others. And, and you're doing just that. And I want to say thank you so much to Drs. Bob and Carolyn DuPont, father-daughter team. Uh, so you guys have done so many things right, I see, from your personal life by having, you know, multi-generation uh, advocates, um, and I think your your you know your message is spot on. Wow, with your choice and education, I really thank you for that. Thank you for your leadership and a privilege for being on this program. You are a leader today, and we are honoring you. That's for sure. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. 
This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oneet Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths. Mm-hmm.